when Joel, and maybe this would just be a preamble here, in Joel, the locusts had come to Judah and absolutely denuded the countryside. I mean, in a matter of hours, locusts took everything out right down to the seed that would have been planted for the next year's crops. And I'm going to contemporize this. I mean, there was a day a couple weeks ago when that which America trusts in, the markets, were denuded within a matter of hours as well. If we go back a few years, there was a matter, we look back to 9-11, where in a matter of moments, those things that we look up to and we're just destroyed in a matter of moments. Joel concluded that it was nothing other than he looked at what happened, the devastation that happened so quickly, and he pretty much concluded that it could be nothing other than the judgment of God. And the Spirit of God began to move on him and he wrote his the word of the Lord as it came to him. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children. And their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And the indictment, awake you drunkards and weep. And wail all you drinkers of wine because of the new wine. For it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land strong without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. I mean, basically everything was wiped out so far that there was was nothing left to offer as a sacrifice to God. There was nothing to bring into the house of the Lord. There was no new wine, there was no oil, there were no sacrifices available. And it says that the priests in verse 9 were mourning because of this. Listen, here's a definition of the word mourn in the Hebrew. Lament, weep, droop, sink down, languish. It describes the reaction of godly priests to the plight of the Lord's people. Further in verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, all you you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 12. And we could read this whole book and it would apply. 
Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Verse 17. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. And do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? It would be nice if we'd read the rest of the book because the promises come. Amen. The restoration comes. The promise of buying back the years that the locusts had eaten. And literally, when the locusts come by, in, in a matter of hours, they consume years of productivity. They throw nations into tailspins. And I think that to some degree, we're seeing some locusts in our nation. And it's going to take years to dig out. I feel these passages this morning. I don't just read them. I hope you don't just hear them. God, help us feel them. Not just so that we can be emotional, but so that it will move us from the core of our being. That it will shake us, wake us. Touch us, Lord, with what's on your heart. You know, I appreciated the worship this morning, the songs we sang. Arise, O God. Psalm 68, Numbers chapter 10. Every time the ark got up to move, the priests put it up on the shoulders and the cloud and the pillar began to move out. Every time the ark got up from its resting spot, Moses said, Arise, O God. Let your enemies be scattered. And every time it came to rest, he would say, Return, O God, to the thousands of your people Israel. We need God's presence. God is on the move. And we need to agree with him by saying, Arise, O God. Let your enemies be scattered. The call yesterday was absolutely powerful. And if we didn't get to get there, and it was online, and I closed myself in my little box and put it on, and hung in with them best I could from a distance. And as I sat there, I was grateful that people had responded from this house to go make the trek and be there, present for us. I was thankful that the troops were out on the corner with the signs promoting righteousness in the midst of our community. And I was thankful that I knew that in homes people had gathered to pray. And to be alongside of a movement that was happening that literally was seen around the world. People participated in the call from Israel and Sweden and all the states of America. And and we did here too. And 
Is it so that we could gain some kind of brownie points with God that we had said, okay, we'll attend? No, it's, it's that our hearts were moved and fashioned and formed alongside of God's heart for a people to return to himself, not just to become political agents, but to become godly men and women again. And to do what Joel said here, tell it to your kids and let them tell it to their kids. You know, the transmission of truth for so many years was verbal, without writings. It was verbal. It was parents pressing it into their children's lives. And then their children would rise up and after they had families, and they would also turn in turn tell the stories to their children. So that nothing was lost. So the truth was held on to and every generation had a piece of it. We live so independently at times and we have even, I think, we should accuse ourselves that when we send our children off to school, we expect that the school is going to teach them stuff they ought to know and they're going to come home somehow, quote unquote, educated. Peggy and I were talking yesterday that it has been 28 years since God was removed from the educational system. It's been 28 years since prayer was removed and the Ten Commandments were taken down off the walls of our educational society in this country. Widespread, 28 years. That means that if you put a child in the first grade and let him go to 12 years and graduate, and when he's graduating, you put the next one in at first grade and let them grow up through the system and graduate, that we have two generations of children just in that estimation. Now, you've got to count all the other years that were injected in there. I mean, all the kids over 28 years, of course, but 28 years, two generations of children that don't understand thou shalt not do some things because it's wrong. We've become amoral. We've become pluralistic. We've become tolerant. Well, let me go to the message. (laughs) Election day is almost here and this room will be turned into a polling place on Tuesday. Thank God for that. You know what? I've always wanted to be a polling place. The church. Why? Because we have a precinct to draw a line around the church. And everybody in our neighborhood has to come home to vote. And I love to get them off the street. You know, they drive by here every day wondering what's that thing over there. And then when they got to go vote, they go, oh, I get to go to that thing and see what it is. You see them wandering around looking and checking it out. And I love it. Anybody want to come down early and make coffee? And we'll serve them coffee and donuts when they come to vote before work. Let me know. I'm up for it. Get up early and make some coffee and smile and give them donuts and say God bless you for coming and voting. and Come into this atmosphere where we worship God and let there be a dominance of His, you know, kind of leftover presence of God when they vote. I like it. If you don't, uh, you believe that America is the land of promise? You know, if you don't believe it, all you got to do is listen to the politicians, right? Promise, promise, promise. <laughs> There was a four-year-old tugging on her dad. He was watching all the political ads, and she said, Would you stop, Dad? Read me a fairy tale. So he was tired of watching all that, so he began to read the fairy tale to her daughter. She stopped him and said, Daddy looked right in his face. and said, Daddy, do all the fairy tales begin with once upon a time? He said, Oh, no, sweetheart. Most fairy tales begin with when I am elected. One preacher said that if Christopher Columbus were around today, he would have been the greatest politician of all time. Why? Well, when he left, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. 
When he came back, he didn't know where he'd been. And he did it all on somebody else's money. (laughs) You know, there are politicians and there are statesmen. And unfortunately, we have more of the former rather than the latter. What we need is statesmen. What we need are men who have grown up and proven themselves as family men, businessmen, leaders, family guidance to the communities they've lived in. They've been elders in their churches. And then they take on the statesman position of speaking to their country, their city, their nations. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, they groan. You know, for the godly to be in authority in America, we have to vote them in. We vote for them. It's pretty simple. Elections are a basic part of the government structure here. And you know that God gave three institutions. He gave marriage and family. He gave the church. And he gave government. And we talked last week about Romans 13 and good government. And if those three institutions are established by God, then we need to be involved in all three. And we need to be involved in all three in the way that God says to be involved in them. We're not supposed to stay out of it. We're supposed to be involved. We're supposed to make a positive impact and lead those around us to blessing and lasting change. We're to influence our nation. Did you know that the first representative assembly in America convened in a church in Jamestown in 1619? Quote, to establish one equal and uniform government over all Virginia, which would provide, quote, just laws for the happy guiding and governing of the people they're inhabiting. Remember when the pilgrims came? 1620, about a year later, and they were blown off course. They didn't make it to Virginia where they would be governed by the king's charter, so they decided to draw up their own self-governing document. you remember the name of it? The Mayflower Compact. It begins, quote, In the name of God. And it gave this reason for their coming, quote again, For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. We're talking about positive influence on Christians of Christians on American culture and government. You might know that Connecticut's called what? You look at the license plate, it says what? The Constitution State. Because the first Constitution in America was enacted in 1639 called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. Did you know that it was based upon Pastor Thomas Hooker's sermon on Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 13? Did you know that the first education laws passed in Massachusetts, of all places, in 1641 for the purpose of ensuring that children would be able to read and understand the Scriptures. That was the first educational law. Wow. Did you know that the very first university in America, you might recall the name, Harvard was named for Reverend John Harvard and it was founded to train ministers and that for 150 years it was distinctly Christian in its mission. Harvard. 
Harvard. Did you know that the first hospitals in America were founded mostly by Christians? And that the Quakers in Pennsylvania and the Puritan ministers in New England were the ones that led the fight against slavery? Did you know that 93% of our founding fathers who voted for the Declaration of Independence and crafted our Constitution were professing Orthodox Christians? And that even the handful who were not Orthodox Christians, each one of them respected biblical morality as the basis for our laws and valued public religion for maintaining order and civility. President George Washington said that the twin pillars essential for supporting a successful society are morality and religion. What kind of religion? Was it just any kind? John Adams, our second president, clarified that when he de- de- uh, clarified it when he said, quote, "The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity." We're talking about the Christians founding, molding, and shaping America. Did you know that our form of government reflects biblical principle? In fact, representative government is based on Exodus 18.21, which says, Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Our systems of checks and balances between the branches of government is based on the doctrine of the sinfulness of man. Did you know that? When they sat down, they said, we are sinful. We are not to be trusted. The Bible says, Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is our hope? We must form a government that protects us from ourselves in our sinfulness. And in Isaiah 33:22 is where we get the three branches of our government right from the scriptures. The Lord is our judge. That's our judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver. That's our legislative branch. And the Lord is our king, the executive branch. And they thought only God can maintain those three positions on his own. The rest of us better split it up and keep a check on each other. And that's how we formed our government. You look back at find that Christians have been involved in the founding and the shaping of American culture and government from the very beginning. And it's the devil's lie that we believe when we conclude, well, there is separation between church and state, so we ought not get involved in politics. You know what? If, if Thomas Jefferson is in heaven, there will be a line in front of him saying, why did you write that letter to the Danbury Baptists? You know, they've taken that sentence from a letter that he wrote to the Danbury Baptist telling them that they should, they should feel okay about things because the government was not going to form some taxed and structured government religion and they were going to be okay. He's, and he talked about the separation of church and state. And that sentence has been taken out and just shoved to the top and put in bold letters and everybody crushes underneath it. It's so sad. Nobody really wants a national tax-supported state church, right? Nobody wants the state to control the churches. And that's what the First Amendment refers to, the First Amendment. Wow. It's not the tenth, it's the first. Are we supposed to be separate from government? 
You've got to think guys like John David are willing to get into the fray. You know, local politics is kind of weird around here. John's in there pitching all the time. See, John is a statesman. He grown up, gave his heart to Jesus, raised his family, proven, stable, got a great work ethic and history. But all his heart is revolving around Jesus now. And then he, somebody said, you need to be in there. And he said, you know what, I'll go. I'll serve. Peggy asked me when I'm going to run for politics. <laughs> you know what? I told her it's after I'm 60 because I think statesmen's come after 60. I think until between 40 and 60, you're supposed to be an elder. After that, you become a statesman. So I'll, I'll be a statesman someday if I live that long. Hallelujah. And then you can be mad at me. You know, one of the reasons I don't want to be a politician is because until then, you can kind of believe that everybody likes you. <laughs> as soon as you become a politician and you make a statement, half the people aren't going to like you anymore. And I like being liked. <laughs> So I guess I'm just a chicken. You're the salt. You're the light, Jesus said in Matthew. You're supposed to be in there bearing influence. In fact, is there any area of reality where the church is supposed to hold back its influence? Not really. We're supposed to permeate every part of the world. Every culture, every society, every ethnic group, every language, we're supposed to be involved. Doing what we've done for centuries, millennia now, making things better because God has come. Our Christian faith and values need to bear upon our culture and our government. And you know, the one of the ways that we get to do that is this week, we get to vote. You know, when we vote, we help determine who's going to lead the nation, who's going to make our laws, who's going to protect our freedoms. Voting is a simple act with a significant impact. Founding Father Samuel Adams said, Let each citizen remember at the moment he is offering his vote that he is executing one of the most solemn trusts in human society for which he is accountable to God and his country. Many of our founding fathers considered voting a sacred responsibility. It's a privilege, a freedom, it's an opportunity that millions in other parts of the world can only dream about. Yet many Americans strangely choose not to vote. Less than half of those eligible to vote actually do so in any given election. In fact, out of 60 plus million evangelical Christians in America, half failed to vote, which I suppose if you'd like to be optimistic, you say half remembered to vote. Only half voted in 2004 in the elections. 60 million Christians, only half of us showed up for duty. American citizens offer lots of reasons why they don't vote. But we have a compelling motivation. Jesus said, give to Caesar what Caesar's. We talked about this last week. Give to God what belongs to God. In order to obey the commandments of Christ... Americans of faith must participate in, gov- in government, and in America, that includes the process of voting. If you and I don't actively participate, then we're not fulfilling the totality of Jesus' command to render to Caesar. In fact, when we retreat from the air- arena of government, we allow Satan to prevail 
in a place where Christ commanded us to make an impact as salt and light. The old proverb still true today. Bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. We need to vote. But don't just vote for the sake of voting. Vote your values. This is amazing to me, but it's many believers don't even consider their Christian values when they are voting. Often choosing candidates whose positions are at odds with their own beliefs and their own convictions and their own values. A study by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life a few years ago showed that 62% of Americans say that their faith has little to do with their voting decisions. It's tragic. How are we going to be an influence? Founding Father J. John Jay was appointed by George Washington as the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Jay said this, quote, It is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. The Supreme Court has come a long way. And let me remind you again as you go to vote this week that when you vote for the next President of the United States, that office will have the ability and the right and the authority to appoint three, maybe four, and could be even five, they're saying now, new Supreme Court justices. Listen, voting for a president isn't always about the president. It's about the other things that are attached to the administration. So even though John Jay said we should vote and have Christians as rulers over ourselves, well, just because they're called Christians, does that mean they carry your value? Unnecessarily. And there's lots of folks that use Christian lingo, and especially if they're politicians, they can do it better than most. You know, they talk about us as a group of people, the evangelical vote. You've got to swing the evangelicals. You've got to get into the camp and smile and say Jesus things so that they'll vote for you. You have to at least say things that make them feel okay about you so they'll vote for you. You know, you need to do some homework. You need to read up. You need to hear what their positions are, not just what they're saying. And watch their political ads and believe everything you see. Look at their positions. Look at their voting records. You know, they all have a set of values. They all have a position. They all have grown up with something that guides the way they think and operate. And that is going to influence the nation. So shouldn't we vote for those that hold our moral values? And I would go as far as say this this morning, don't align yourself with a particular party or a particular politician. You know, they can go bad. We know that. And when they do, we should be distant enough from the party or the politician to say to them, come home to Jesus. Repent. Change. Get back to where you need to be. We can't just go with them pell-mell running off in some wrong direction aligning ourselves carte blanche with their positions. If they go bad, we're in trouble. We need to be able to call them back to biblical morality. 
Founding Father Benjamin Rush worked for elected officials on both political parties and was accused of being partisan. He's quoted as responding, and I like this, maybe we could all adopt it. He said, I've been alternately called an aristocrat and a democrat. I am neither. I am a Christocrat. (laughs) Our loyalty needs to be first, last, and always to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to vote his values. What are those values? Well, even here in our house, in our little town, we know that there's multiple opinions about what does the Bible say and how should we approach it. Economy, national security, energy independence, immigration. You know, these are all things that uh, poverty, racial equality, environmental stuff, stewardship of the land. I mean, there's lots of stuff we can talk about when we get into the political realm. But can I give you three that are at the top of my list today? The first one is the value of human life. And I will be doing well to get through this first one. Life is precious. It's miraculous. It's the seed and stamp and imprint of God himself on every life that comes into the world. David prayed, My bones weren't hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. See, God's the author and the artist of human life. Being made in the image of God is a fundamental right for every person. According to our own Declaration of Independence, all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are, come on, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The order is significant. Life comes first. If you don't have life, you're certainly not going to enjoy liberty or any pursuit of happiness. Our God-given right to life in America has been undermined in our culture of death. Every day in America... Every day, where? Say it, in America. More innocent human beings are put to death than all of those who died in 9-11. Every day. Abortion in America ends the lives of 1.3 million unborn children in America every year. Nearly 25% of all pregnancies end in abortion, and the overwhelming majority of those innocent children are simply sacrificed on the altar of convenience. Nearly 50 million babies and counting have been killed by abortion. We should term it, and it will be termed in history, the American Holocaust. We have no right to condemn any other piece of history, whether Stalin, Hitler, any of the other regimes that took out people, marched them into gas chambers. We don't even let them be born 
and we take them out before they get here. God knows every one of them. He knows every one of them by name. He knows all of their bones. He knows their fashioning in the womb. Jeremiah the prophet said, God knew me in my mother's womb. God said to him, before you were born, I called you to be a prophet. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 says, Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering toward the slaughter. If you say, We knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? We need to rise up, stand up, speak out, take action. Why? Because abortion is wrong. It's premeditated murder. I I was wrestling with the numbers this morning again. I even had my calculator out and I'm thinking, come on. Five babies every two minutes around the clock, 24-7-365 every five minutes, every couple of minutes, five babies. I just thought, this is insanity. Now, if we were just to, how many, how many children, do you know how many children in our school district, in our elementary schools, what kind of a number would it be, 1,000, 1,200, a couple thousand? 3,600 kids in the whole district. That would include high school. At this rate, I mean, if we just decided on one day, let's go tie all their hands and feet and set them on benches, and then every, you know, take out five of them every couple of minutes, just go down the line and shoot them. How long would that last before some, I mean, the army would roll in here, right? But that's what we're doing with our unborn. They have no defense. Like our elementary school children here, if we just started tying them up, they would have no defense. They wouldn't know what's happening. We'd take their life. It's not any different, ladies and gentlemen. From the scriptural perspective, it is not any different. I mean, the sixth commandment is still in the Bible, right? Thou shalt not kill. I mean, that's direct premeditated killing. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And his ears are filled with the cries of the unborn being slain in this nation. And there is going to be a day of reckoning. There has to be. You know, one said kind of jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, but it weighs on me when I think about it. If God does not judge America, then he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek statement, but it's trying to get us to open our eyes and go, my goodness, you know, we read the scriptures and go, oh, look what happened to that, those cities. Brimstone, fire falling from heaven, consuming everything. Had to get Lot out of town with his family. So he didn't get killed. It was a reality. These aren't just stories in the Bible. These are actual occurrences. And then you look at us, we are well ahead of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now listen, don't ever confuse what I'm saying with me being unpatriotic. I love my country. I'm the guy that cries at the baseball game when they sing the national anthem. I can't hardly sing it. I love 
America. But I'm sorry for her today. I'm sad for her today. I feel Joel for her today. And we're not hopeless. We're not helpless. We have opportunity. Tuesday is one of those opportunities. You know, we need to find out what these candidates' positions are on the biblical value of life. Where do they stand on abortion, cloning, embryo-destructive stem cell experimentation, and euthanasia? Are they aligned with pro-abortion groups like NARAL and and taxpayer-funded abortion, Planned Parenthood? I can't believe those people exist. Find out how they vote, how they intend to vote on life issues like the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, Partial Birth Ban, Freedom of Choice Act, the Embryonic Stem Cell Research, etc. As believers, we ought to support the value of human life above the value of tax policy, energy policy, foreign policy, or any other policy. The value of life. Second, the value of traditional family. Marriage between one man and one woman is essential. It's basic. It is necessary. The family is the basic building block of society. The first institution created by God. Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The two genders were meant to complete each other physically, emotionally, and in every other way. In Genesis 2.24, God further declares the reason. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. They'll become one flesh. Both genders are needed for a healthy home. Dr. James Dobson and Shirley made it to the call yesterday. Moved by the Spirit of God. He said God just had his hand in his back and said he had to go. And I appreciate that about him. Lots of us have grown up with Dr. Dobson helping us with our families and giving us the insights we needed in the time we needed it. He makes this note, and this is amazing, to hear all the rhetoric flying around in the controversy. He says more than, you know, don't forget Dr. Dobson has a doctor in front of his name for a reason. Right? He's a clinical psychologist working with young people and families. More than 10,000, he says, more than 10,000 studies have concluded that kids do best when they're raised by mothers and fathers. You know, for you and I, I think that's kind of a simple thing. I mean, it reminds me of the pork barrel stuff that happens. You know, there was a study a couple of years back, a few years now, that, you know, they were trying to pass some vote in the House or whatever, and it was, had all this money attached to it. And tucked way down inside this bill that was getting passed was something like $90,000 for a study to be made of why two- and three-year-olds fall off of tricycles. I mean, it was in there. All this 90 grand. Somebody's going to go conduct a study. I thought, man, just pick three moms, give me each 30 grand, and say, why does your kid fall off that tricycle? And they'll say, because he's young, because he's inexperienced. His motor skills aren't developed yet. I mean, I can tell you, they don't need to do a study. Spend money like that. But 10,000 studies, and what do they've come up with? Kids do best when they're raised by moms and dads. Pick a couple moms and dads, they'll tell you that. But there's a lot of other stuff flying around out there right now trying to say that it should happen another way. 
When God's patterns are undermined, the whole superstructure of society begins to fail. Any deviation from the divine pattern invites disaster. Excuse me. No. <laughs> sound effects from the sound booth, I think. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Is this going to be online later? Holy smokes. <laughs> Am I red? I sure feel red. Oh, Father, let me give you number three. I mean, I could have pages on number two, traditional family. And You know, I, did, I made the paper this week. Thanks for some of you called and said, thank me for my small comments that got into the paper. Uh, I didn't know they were all going to make the paper when I was saying them. You know how that works? But unfortunately, there weren't any of them in there that I, I, I regret. Uh, nor did I know I was going to be up against a couple other people in, the, in an article that way, but it was small. It was my contribution. I'm proud of it. But I know there are people that disagree. Strong. I mean, I got the emails to show it. You know, email is kind of a chicken way of doing communication. <laughs> sort of how to sneak in your inbox without being seen. I reach it. It's sort of like running in in the dark, slapping somebody and running out. You know? I got a few of them. Some attached with YouTube videos, you know, watch this, you bigoted, so whatever you are. So, hey, life is good. Standing up for what's right. And uh, defending marriage as it should be in our country, to hold our country together in the future. If we don't hold it together, listen, this thing's going to unravel fast. I mean, can I just say to you, vote yes on eight? I say to you, vote yes on four, even though we should never have to get to voting on four. And, uh, I mean, we, it, abortion should just be illegal. There shouldn't be any reason we're having a law passed that says tell mom and dad it's going to happen before it happens. It should just not be happening. But it is, to the tune of 50 million. It's also against the law. Yeah. The Constitution of the United States. We have so that much. Caesar, yeah. And we do it by the 50 million. Yep. Yep. And we need to make a change. Something else that's under attack, and I stand number three, value of religious freedom. I think that's why I weep at the national anthem. I think that's why I still like to say the Pledge of Allegiance. That's why this morning, and I don't mean to embarrass him, when Tom Gustafson came and served communion to me, I felt such a privilege that a man who serves his country in the military would be serving me communion. I take that as a high honor. I have a high level of respect for those that say, let's defend our country. Listen, I'm not an actor. I don't make this stuff up so it's pointed in my message. It happens because I believe in things. And I want you to believe 
in godly things too. I want you to be passionate about the things that are wrong and help make them right. Freedom is inspiring. It's liberating. It's, it's really as priceless. And there's a freedom that comes in Christ that is even more priceless. Because people in nations that are not free can still be free in Christ. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has made you free. You know, today, this month in Iran, for example, they are looking at passing legislation that for any man who leaves the Muslim faith for another faith and is uh, brought in and convicted of it, the penalty on the books, the law, will be accepted in Iran. The penalty will be death. That's already happening, but they're going to make it a law if they can pass it. The, the penalty for any female who leaves the Muslim faith to another faith will be life imprisonment. This is actually happening in our world this month. And I implore you, if you lift up Iran, pray for that thing to be confused and diffused and destroyed. But you know what? The church is rapidly expanding in Iran because of the pressure, because of the persecution. It's happening quicker. Maybe we need a little around here to help the church expand. Our, our freedoms are being threatened too. True freedom comes at a great cost, a huge price and sacrifice. We know that because Jesus paid an ultimate price for us. That was a huge sacrifice and a grand price. It's also true for nationalities that we must stand for what's right, defend freedom, and defend religious freedom. This wall of separation thing, you know, some of the results is that we've been told that religious influence must be removed from public institutions. We outlawed public prayer in schools in 1962, public Bible reading in 1963. In 1980, the Ten Commandments came down from the schoolhouse walls. You may have been here when I preached the message and I put a bunch of graphs up on the wall. and You can go and look at almost anything you want. Crime rates, birth out of wedlock, abortions. You just go to these dates in the graphs and you'll find that you know, there were these little lines going across like this, 1962, 63, just turned and went right through the roof. And they're still up there. The agenda of radical secularization isn't, it's not only been zealously prosecuted by activist courts, but by extension, the various public entities, school boards, educators, teachers, some on purpose and others out of fear. Today in America, if you have faith, you may not be allowed to have freedom. Liberals in Congress have been trying to pass hate crimes law that will elevate the sinful sexual lifestyle choice of only 3% of the population to the level of a civil right. Ignoring the fact that if it becomes law, those who oppose homosexuality will eventually be silenced, threatened, imprisoned, prosecuted, I mean, I'm just going to read, if you haven't heard this, some of these things, there's a Methodist camp in New Jersey 
they lost their tax-exempt status because they refused to allow two lesbians to have a wedding on their property. You may have heard about the Christian couple in New Mexico, the photographers that declined to shoot photography of a wedding, if you will, for two homosexuals, and the homosexuals sued them. And one, and the photographers had to pay all the attorney fees. The California Supreme Court, which I'm very unhappy with presently, demanded that doctors with religious objections to lesbian households must nonetheless assist lesbian women in artificially conceiving a child. I mean, the guy's got his own practice. He's free in America to practice his medicine, and he has conviction. He says, that's not on my list of things to do. And the state Supreme Court says, you will. A New York public school told a kindergarten student that she couldn't pray over her lunch. She was praying, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. Now that one got reversed, but not before it happened. Federal court ruled that when a student asks, the teacher cannot answer whose birthday is being celebrated at Christmas. Whose birthday is Christmas? I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. That's a federal court. Public school teacher confiscated two middle school students' Bibles, called them garbage, and threw them into a trash can. I hope that sends something up your spine. The Third Circuit Court ruled that a New Jersey high school coach cannot kneel and bow his head. How many high school coaches have you seen do that when their teams lose it anyway, right? Just all... But the Third Circuit Court ruled he can't do that because his posture might be misconstrued as prayer. Now you're laughing and I'm thinking, where have we come to? Now these people didn't get in their positions by accident. We elected people who appointed them and now they're making these laws. In fact, they're legislating from the bench. Our First Amendment freedom of religion is under vicious assault today. George Washington in his farewell address said, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are, of indis- are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Nobody ought to claim to be a good citizen or a patriot who takes Christianity out of the culture and God out of the government. Consequently, where a candidate stands on religious freedom and particularly on judicial philosophy is absolutely critical to our ability to continue to have freedom of speech and freedom of conscience in our business dealings and freedom of worship. Find out where candidates are aligned with groups like the ACLU, Americans for Separation of Church and State, who seek to remove all public expressions of religion. I have a letter in my trash can upstairs.
from the Americans for separation of church and state. I mean, they went to the trouble to mail to every pastor a letter threatening us about doing what I'm doing right now. Trying to help you decide and influence you about voting for righteousness. They said, don't you do it, because if we catch you, we'll sue you. Man, that thing hit the trash. I I was going to keep it as a collector item, actually, but I thought, no, I don't even want it here. And I threw it in the trash, and I thought, how desperate are they? On the other hand, how organized are they? How many pulpits are going to be silenced this weekend because they got a letter like that and it scared them? We're going to lose our exemption. You know what? If we lose our exemption, it just means we're paying taxes. Big deal. If they cuff me and take me away, I expect every lighthouse leader to do something about it by winning souls and making disciples. I would not expect you to come bail me out, okay? You come visit me, that would be fine. Get me out, that's fine too. But I expect you to do what Jesus did. You see, when John the Baptist was beheaded, it broke Jesus' heart. But the next thing you find him doing is casting out demons. <laughs> I always remembered that. I thought, hey, here's, here's my interpretation. You take one of mine, I'm taking all of yours. <laughs> you got my John, you're out, you're out, you're out. He just started kicking demons out. You didn't have to go pick it, don't behead John the Baptist. He said, let's just take our right, let's take our authority and the spirit and begin to live it out. And do what they do in Iran. So you're going to make it a law that you're going to kill me because I'm a Christian. I better win as many as I can before you get me. And lead them to Jesus. So I expect a good response from the church of Jesus. If persecution comes. But we can still fight for our religious freedoms. Amen. Find out where people stand on these things. Life, family, and freedom. I think those are three top notch ones for me. Share them with you. I'm not going to let other people decide on those things for me without my opinion being expressed. I have the opportunity to do it by voting in my country and in your country, and we should take it. And let me just encourage you, if you're not registered to vote, don't take this as a scolding or a beating. Just go to the post office and get a thing and send it in and get registered and get ready for the next round. Okay? Don't, don't, don't set this one out. If you are registered to vote, then show up at your place and do it. If you need a ride, you can call us. We'll help you get there. Obviously, you got here somehow today. You can probably get there on Tuesday. Uh, whatever help you need, we'll help you get it done. But let's hold together those pieces of what we've had as culture before us. Let's hold them in place so that we don't lose them. Now, you probably didn't come for this today. But I pray that there was somebody during that communion that gave your heart to Jesus today. And let me say to you, if today you prayed that prayer with me during communion and asked Jesus to come into your life as Lord and Savior, we're not always about politics around here. We're about Jesus. We're about living for Christ, understanding the Scriptures and conforming our lives and hearts with who He is and what He wants from us. And so... Um, don't take your first trip to Christian Center as a political agenda item and say, well, that's crazy. I'm not going back. Come back. Grab, grab the menu on the back of the bulletin. and Look at all those names for all those cell groups. We call them lighthouses. Uh, meet and visit and uh, 
had a couple last night. Uh, Joe, you should be getting a call this week from a gentleman last night. Said, you know, I'm just having a hard time getting in. Where do I fit? I said, when, where you, what's your schedule? He says, well, I'm off on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Made it real easy. I just went to the Bolton, looked at the menu, and said, here's a great Tuesday group. Here's a bunch of Wednesday groups. And uh, you're a single guy. Maybe you'll fit right here. Or you can, you know, your age group. Hey, find one and get into it. If you don't know where you fit, ask somebody, where do I fit? And we'll tell you. We'll help you. But we're about serving Jesus first. And so your decision to follow Christ is a good one. I'm going to um, I'm going to shut up. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Basically, that's the end of it. Listen, you, you may have noted this was not a real preaching message as much as 12 pages of reading some things to you. And uh, you may be interested in having them. I, I took the, the thought that maybe you'd want a copy of it. So, let me, uh, could, I, could I ask you, it's so, it's so good to have these two chairs filled up right here. Could you just, um, I, we can just set them back there, we can hand, I guess we can hand them out, I suppose, if you want, if we need more. This has, this has everything in it, including all the footnotes for verifying the facts, if you want them. And uh, there's about 12 pages there. I only made 50 copies, and uh, I'm sure there's more than 50 people here. Maybe take one to a household and make another copy for yourself if you need to. Yes. Sure. Go ahead while they're handing those out. Bobby's going to share something here. Amen. That's another one. No way. I'm just this late bulletin just arrived. Um, Some of you have heard this, and I I do appreciate being able to give the the proper story. We've been asked on this a couple of times, Uh, but you say, how does how do these things affect us as believers? Some of you know John and Tracy Green, a little wedding chapel right next to uh, Circle K here in Big Bear City, the Hitching Post. They've been doing it for years. And uh, what happened was that John had to go to a training after the laws changed about issuing marriage licenses. So he went to a meeting with the county, and the county's telling all the people that issue marriage licenses how they have to handle things. In that setting, he was told that he would have to issue licenses to homosexual couples and then be available to do, perform their ceremonies. 
At the end of the training, he stood up in that group. I think there was about 50 people there, 40, 50 people in the training. And he said, let me just make this. Um, these are my words, not his, but something like, let me just be clear. You're saying that I, as a wedding chapel, in order to issue licenses any longer, uh, have to issue them to homosexuals and perform ceremonies for them. They said, yes, that's the way it is. And he said, well, I can just turn in all my stuff today because I'm not going to do that. And uh, consequently, subsequently, he has lost his business. He, is, he's, he has no source of income. Um, basically, he could do wedding ceremonies still, but the people would have to go somewhere else to get a license and then come to his little chapel, which isn't how wedding chapels operated. They, they are able to make money because they can actually issue the license. But he has refused to do this. And I suppose if he could somehow suffer through Prop and Prop 8 happens, then he could be, get back in business, I suppose. But today, he and his wife are losing their home, their business, and everything they've got. They're just basically flat busted because he stood for what was right. And uh, if you know them, maybe you could get in touch with them and see if there's any help you could give them, lend them, help them get through. But it does touch us. And that's right here just a few blocks from where we sit today. It's not remote. It's not somebody else's party, right? It's happening. Father, would you help us? And I know you will. So that's almost a rhetorical question. But, Father, I thank you for your help ahead of time that you will... Strengthen us. Give us courage. Help us to see ourselves as soldiers for freedom in this community and in our country. God, I pray that you would help each one make positive, biblical, moral choices in their voting this season. And in their influence of others, that you will grant them a voice that speaks truth. God, that you will give us not only the information but insight, revelation about what is true and what we should hold to as we speak with others. Lord, we pray for John and Tracy specifically and all the others like them who have been willing to stand for righteousness. You are our help and our reward. Our trust is in you. Our hope is in you. And we will stand with you, Lord, as you help us through these days and hours in which we live. I pray that you'll encourage the church and, Father, the body of Christ will be revitalized in this hour. Lord, I pray that you will call the ministers to come to weep between the porch and the altar, to bow our hearts and to confess our sin and, and to make our hearts right with you. And the Lord, you would bring to us the answer of Joel and restore to us the years the canker worm, the palmer worm and the locusts have eaten. Bring back to us again an opportunity to serve you more aptly, more specifically, and with strength. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Be blessed. I'll see you out there on Tuesday. Amen. Vote here, there, and everywhere.